0: I guess let's talk a little bit about what this book is about. It explores the little-known history of the missionary women who ran what was, I think, essentially a safe house, right, for for um, Chinese women in Chinatown and here in San Francisco um, who were trafficked into slavery, prostitution, working as, what would you say, indentured servitude in households? <laughs>
1: Welcome to today's Grotto Pod. I'm Susie Gerhard, and we're here in the recording studio at the Writers Grotto in San Francisco with Julia Flynn Seiler and Bonnie Tsui. Julia is a former staff writer for the Wall Street Journal and New York Times best-selling author. Her most recent book is *The White Devil's Daughters: The Women Who Fought Slavery in San Francisco's Chinatown*. The San Francisco Chronicle said it was meticulously researched and inspiring. We're going to talk about that today with the Grotto's Bonnie Tsui who is a longtime contributor to the New York Times and the author of the award-winning American Chinatown. I am so eager to hear what you guys have to say, so let's get started. Well, first of all, I'm so excited to be in
0: here with you, Susie, and you, Julie. Um, (laughs) Julie, let's start off with the provocative title by asking you, who are the White Devil's Daughters?
2: Yes, the White devil's daughters refers to the girls and women who pass through the home. Our best estimate, my best estimate, um, is that between 2,000 and 3,000 uh, women and girls came through the home between 1874 and the time the home changed its, its mission in the mid to late 1930s. So it operated essentially as a rescue home or a safe home for vulnerable uh, women from China and other countries for that period of time. The daughters uh, also refer specifically to the way that they referred to themselves, or at least some of them, in relation to the white women who were the staffers, or some of the staffers. And they referred to one in particular, a woman named Donaldina Cameron, who was known by her family as Dolly, as Lomo, old mother, Uh, and she called them her daughters. And one of the most poignant things I found in my research were um, Mother's Day cards sent to Donaldina Cameron from former residents of the home who had moved all over the country thanking her for her help.
0: There were so many people involved in these heroic efforts, and your book just does this incredible job of detailing and and bringing to life some of who
2: these women were. And, And they were women. They, they were women, the core group. Um, they had men who supported them along the way as well. But the initial idea for the safe house, as you put it, came from a very, very small group of women in the early 1870s in San Francisco.
0: Julie, I would love to talk a little bit about why you chose to write this book in the first place. Um, you've clearly got a really deep interest in all things historical and, of course, things that... Um, stories that have really modern-day relevance. Um, You wrote books about Queen Lulio Kalani and the Mandavi wine family. And so tell us, why does Donaldina Cameron matter today? And Donaldina Cameron, for those uh, listeners who haven't yet read the book but will, um, tell us about her.
2: Sure. Let's start with Donaldina Cameron. She was known as Dolly by her family, and she was born to uh, a father who was a a sheep farmer, and um, she was the youngest of a, a very large family that had begun in Scotland, moved to New Zealand, and then came to California looking for opportunities. And um, she suffered some early tragedies in her life, most importantly, probably the loss of her own mother. And uh, remember, this the late 19th century was a time when women had very little power. They didn't have the right to vote. They had very little financial or economic power. And most women were confined to the home. That was viewed as their sphere of influence. Well, Dolly was engaged to be married to a young man in her late teens, and that engagement ended. We don't know exactly why. And a family friend approached her from the San Francisco Bay Area and said, you know, we've got this charitable project going. Would you be interested in coming up to San Francisco and working as a sewing teacher? And uh, Dolly had very few other options. She needed to support herself so she came came to the home in 1895 920 Sacramento Street in the edge of San Francisco's Chinatown and almost immediately uh, learned that this was a very unusual home and that this was a home, a safe house for women and children who had been uh, exploited one way or the other or abused in some way. And so while she perhaps had initially thought she would be teaching them how to stitch and hem garments, she very soon began to realize that the calling or the situation she'd stepped into was much more complex. And um, she's a fascinating figure, Bonnie, and there had been several biographies written about her over the years. Um, I was particularly interested and found her when I came across an account that she wrote, a first-person account of Uh, leading the girls and women who resided in the home to safety after the 1906 earthquake. And when I read that account that she'd written, I was uh, very moved and also very intrigued. Who was this person? She had a very strong voice and very descriptive writing.
0: Right. So it was actually her voice that called out to you when you you read her account that, that said, this is a person of force and, you know, made change in the world, it seems like.
2: Yes, made change and lived in a, you know, she she lived in a very modest way for decades, uh, first as a teacher in the home and then stepping up to become the superintendent of the home. And unlike the previous biographers, I didn't want to just focus on Dolly. I really wanted to focus on the, the women who came through the home and found freedom in different ways, and of course, finding freedom applies to dolly as well because if she had not taken that job and had not stepped into that role she perhaps may not have exercised the kind of moral influence and to be sure public influence that she ended up exercising as really a pioneering uh campaigner against trafficking in the united states i think that the, the mission home and the women who work there should be much better known as early anti-trafficking activists.
0: I think that is the framework in which we should be thinking about this book because it's not just this, you know, this episode in history. I think the context really matters, and so I would love for you to talk a little bit more about, you know, setting the scene of where this book takes place and and what were the forces that were bringing these women into Chinatown and, and keeping them there.
2: Imagine 1870s San Francisco. The gold rush has ended. There is an economic uh, period of depression that is settling across the West at this point. A number of people are coming to the city looking for work. And there's a great deal of racism, particularly towards the Chinese. And uh, during that period of time, there are marches. There are what's known as the Sandlot Riots. Um, The newspapers are filled with racial invective um, because some white people feel the Chinese are taking their jobs. And it was during exactly this moment that uh, this small group of church women started to notice the despicable treatment of Chinese women and Asian women and girls. And they kind of acted against the racism of the period, and they said, we are going to reach out, to these these young young women who have absolutely no other options and we're going to set up first a very modest little safe house and so originally it was on a in an apartment and then they bought a house they raised money to buy a house to do this but that's the scene which is not only are there marches on the street are there lynchings taking a place across the west active violence towards the Chinese but there's a series of legislation that is passed by California state legislators which try to stop the Chinese and other Asian immigrants from coming into the country
0: I think one of the um, one of the things that the book does so well is to set the urgency of the scene for the characters I mean a woman in Chinatown, uh, who had escaped prostitution, who had escaped, um, you know, domestic enslavement, could actually be expected to be, like, snatched off the street by, you know, if, if, she, if she wasn't careful or if she wasn't with someone who, you know, could be a witness or to, like, help her. That was something that was real, that that was, it was, the danger was that explicit.
2: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it was a dangerous place to be if you were a woman, any kind of woman in San Francisco, particularly. Um, A Chinese or an Asian woman. Mm -hmm. And the presumption was that if you were on the street, you were a sex worker or a forced prostitute. And so uh, that's partly why I think that this kind of movement against that racism was so, so interesting, even though it started so modestly. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, what I really like about the story is that it's... um It's a story of friendship, too. I mean, there were all these friendships, again, uh, uh, between the women who were, who founded the home and then who befriended uh, the women who lived in the home and then worked together to help others. And so, you know, it's a story of how we treat immigrants. And, and, and as you and I have talked about in the past, um, who would have guessed that <laughs> that it is so salient now? Um, but I think that there's a sort of renewed um, uh, resonance uh, that, that you couldn't have seen when you started writing this book oh, five, six years ago?
2: Mm-mm. No, I didn't see it at all. But I do see this very much as a story about how we treat immigrants and how we should treat immigrants. Early on in the course of my research, I went to a... Uh, a gathering at Portsmouth Square, which is, of course, the, one of the original s- places where San Francisco was centered. And this um, there were protesters. This was after the Trump administration had uh, uh, enacted the Muslim ban. And there were protesters carrying signs that said, remember 1882. Mm -hmm. And of course, what they're referring to is the Chinese Exclusion Act Mm -hmm. of 1882. And yes, this is very resonant. And Bonnie, you mentioned the friendship. And that was the unexpected um, part of the story that really touched me deeply. And it was a story of a friendship between Dolly and a girl who arrived at the home 15 months before Dolly did. Her name was Tin Fu Wu. And she had been sold by her father to pay his gambling debts. She came to the home because she had been abused and um, came to the, the um, authorities, became aware of her plight. And through the home, uh, teen got an education. She went east to college, and she went back to China eventually to try to reform. You know, relocate her or locate her family, particularly her mother and her grandmother, was unable to find them and realized that her true family really was in that home. And so she came back and worked side by side with Dolly Cameron for decades, and they became each other's closest friends.
0: Yeah, I found that relationship really moving, um, uh, not just in the work that they did together, but sort of towards the end of their lives that they remained such close friends. I I want to ask you, so many of these subjects in this book are so charged, right? So there's trafficking, there's race, there's class issues. How do you see your role as a storyteller in this story?
2: Well, I think that, you know, in a perfect world, I would not be the person telling this story. I am a white woman. I'm privileged, relatively privileged. It would have been better if somebody had stepped forward who read Chinese, spoke Chinese, um, to tell it, but there wasn't anybody else who was doing it, so I decided to do it as best as I could. And I worked closely with um, a Chinese-American former uh, executive director of what's now known as Cameron House to work with the, the files in the home, and also with Chinese translators when there were words or when there were documents that I didn't quite understand and I really wanted to understand them. Mm-hmm.
0: There are so many threads in this book, and we're not going to be able to get to all of them in this one podcast. But um, I wanted to ask you about the sort of nuts and bolts of keeping track of, you know, the archival material and all of the broadcast of
2: characters during your research and writing. How did you do it? Well... It was helpful to have done it with two other kind of very broad books before. Mm-hmm. And each time the technology advanced. It so got this hurt. got better. <laughs> so this time around, actually thanks to some grotto friends, I discovered the, the joys of TurboScan. So I could go to into archives and immediately scan a lot of documents. So I probably have 10,000 do- documents that I've scanned in the course of this book. Um, the book I wrote on Hawaii, we... Uh, my researcher and I actually created a private website for ourselves where we housed those documents. And uh, to this day, many documents involving the uh, royal family in Hawaii are not uh, digitized, um, as far as I know. But You have a private collection? I have a private <laughs> collection. Anybody working on Hawaii stuff, let me know, and I'll help you out. Um, with this, I kept it all on Evernote. And what I tell people, when they start to think about a big project like this involving, in this case, it's almost seven decades or eight decades of characters coming in and out and legislation and, you know, so many different layers of how to tell a story and what's happening, is that chronology is your friend. And so that was super helpful. And the first thing I think I did was to do a very detailed time timeline and to track where the characters were on this timeline, when they enter, when they exit. Um, and that's just, it just helps clarify. Right, thinking. right, then you can see where everyone is in relationship to
0: one another yes. at any point in time, which I I found, you know, that you open the book with a, a particular character, and then that character comes back in, and I thought, ooh, she, you know, she's uh, she's back. And, she and I really loved, um, I don't want to give it away, but, you know, there's particular um stories of um, uh, challenges that that each of these women faced in trying to find their freedom from China, through Chinatown, you know, out of Chinatown. And so obviously, these are v- pretty harrowing trips and 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 pretty harrowing circumstances. But um, you know, you try to you so vividly portray, so many of the steps along the way. And so one of the you know, what one, one of the things I'm always interested in when it comes to Chinatown is the characters, right? So it's we always think about Chinatown as a a place, again, this like foreign yet familiar. And so it's sort of exciting and, and scintillating and titillating, but also like not too crazy because it's, you know, in our backyard. And to this day I think that characterization does hold true. I mean, people always flock to Chinatown because it is, you know, as it as tourists, um, they want to see, even though the way that it is portrayed is, I mean, there, there are interesting backstories to kind of peel back. But what I always try to gravitate back to is the people. And so what I really loved about this book, it is all about people. It's all about individuals. Um, what I um, think about, you know, in reporting my Chinatown book was that I got to actually talk to the people. In real time, there were contemporaries. I could ask them about the stories. I could fact check and ask them about their opinions and their
2: well. Not only but- that, Bonnie. One of the things I so loved about American Chinatown is you got to speak to probably the single most important historians of, of San Francisco's Chinatown. Oh, Yes. I so much. Yes. And I, I knew of his work, um, but I never met him, yeah. which is such a shame. And likewise, him, Mark Lai, whose papers, um, he left this incredible bounty of materials to Berkeley, which I worked in extensively, but I never met him. It made me really happy that you
0: were able to make use of his archive, because I know that he so deeply felt that it was so important to record people record people's um, lives Um, oh so this is this leads to my question of you didn't have the luxury of speaking to Dolly Cameron say or to um, you know any of the other characters but and yet you were able to um, you know you had certain writings to rely on again coming at them from different pieces of evidence and directions and um, did you ever have trouble characterizing them like were there things that you wanted to include but couldn't
2: um, I'm going to answer that question, but first I want to go back to him, Mark Lai, just yeah. for a moment. And um, I was so delighted to discover that he probably did the last interview with Teen Fu Wu, which was an audio recording. And yeah, I, I could there. hear her voice, and there were vo- voice recordings of interviews with Dolly Cameron and Teen and a bunch of the other missionary workers. And at Stanford as well. So that made an incredible difference to actually hear the voices, to hear how they answered questions. Um, And and that, um, it it wasn't really until I heard Dolly's voice at Stanford that I decided to go ahead with this project because she was a lot gentler in these recordings than I had somehow expected her to be and a lot more human. Um, So what do I wish I could have found that I didn't? I feel like i have better insight into teen Mm -hmm. than i did into dolly Mm -hmm. i believe that dolly's a number of her private letters were destroyed Mm -hmm. Um, i tracked down the person who took care of her niece's house and you know he had a long explanation of what happened to her letters Mm -hmm. which i'm not sure i believe but i wish i had understood more of her inner life, mm-hmm. and I did the best I could um, without uh, speculating sure. too much.
0: What did um, Tian uh, reveal to you in her in her interviews um, heard the recordings? I would love to know about what her voice said sounded.
2: Oh, I she was very likable. She was um, forthright, had a sense of humor, a little bit blunt, um, very. Uh, all I can say is that she had a real spark of life and mm-hmm. liveliness, and um, the nieces, the grand nieces of Dolly Cameron, I was able to interview them, and they, they spoke about their rather stern aunt, Dolly. Right. And uh, that she was a little bit of a scary figure to them, whereas Auntie Wu, who is how they knew teen, was very lovable and was showering them with gifts on their birthdays and. So I, I got a little sense from people who still remember him.
0: Auntie Wu was like the, the other side that Dolly couldn't quite show, I think it seemed like.
2: Yes, I think you're right. And and so interesting that both of them had lost their own mother so early on in their lives.
0: And I mean, it's it's not that stories wrap up neatly in a bow, but in that respect, I think the way this book comes together ultimately... Again, is the story of this friendship. and then also just the the strength of female bonds and friendship that helped to break the bonds of of um, what held them in a society that was not friendly to them and did not um, take care of them. so they had to take care of themselves.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so what do you what do you want people to take away from this book?
2: Well, I uh, uh, several things. I think for one thing, there was a very small group of women who, were activists and who were concerned, and against all odds, managed to not just raise the money to buy a house that could house 50 to 60 girls and women at one time, but raise the profile of what they were doing and expanded this definition to the point where they were testifying in front of state legislators, going to the East Coast to talk about their work, going to Washington, D.C. to talk about their work. So... Um, It started very small, and it really, to me, gives me hope that uh, we can make change as well. Be the change change. (laughs) you want to see in the world. (laughs) Thank you
0: so much, Julie.
1: Thank you, Bonnie. (laughs) And that's our show for today. Grotto Pod is produced by me, Susie Gerhardt, George Higgins, Ben Marks, Daniel Pierce, and Beth Weingarner with help from Kristen Cosby. The music is by Sugar Town. GrottoPod is concocted in-house at the Writers Grotto in San Francisco. Please review and subscribe to GrottoPod in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks, Bonnie and Julia. And thanks to you out there for listening.